If you have a Bible, grab it, turn to Psalm 138. Today's service uh, is a little bit different um, than the typical way that we do sermons. And you might have noticed that before the church service, we just kind of hung out and had donuts and coffee before the service. And uh, I'm going to ask you some questions in the middle of this sermon time where we're going to do something called, uh, well, I was told it's something like think, pair, share, where I ask you a question, you think about it, talk with someone around you, and then we're going to open it up to the whole group and say, did anyone have anything they want to share? Think, pair, share. If you're just like a highly introverted person and you're just like, I don't want to talk to anyone, please let me just like back row Joe it and, uh, and be uh, anonymous, that's okay too. Don't make eye contact with anyone when I start asking questions then and then they won't talk to you. Um, so think, pair, share. And uh, so now that we've read our passage, uh, I have a, a question I want to ask you, but I'll, I'll make a point first. So uh, the reason why we have coffee and donuts in the foyer and then hang out there before church, and the reason why we periodically have testimonials or as we're going to have after the end of the sermon time, a public sharing of testimonies, is because we are a multi-ethnic community on a mission to make disciples. And we tweak little things and experiment with little things that might feel different from other churches that you've been a part of if you've ever been to church before. And sometimes we change big things, but all of it's in an effort to fulfill the vision that we have of being a multi-ethnic, kind of diverse family that is also a community, but not just a community, country club, uh, place that you can belong, but we're a community on mission. And because our community is diverse, there's a unique way that God works in your life because of the cultural and life experiences that you have. And it might very well be a huge blessing to someone else in your culture of origin or from a totally different culture when you share about how God has erased shame in your life or how God has given you a new self-worth because of your identity in Jesus Christ or how he affected the way you think about family or or your kids. What I mean to say is because we're diverse, we have different stories, and then when you share about how God has worked in your life, it might very well be a blessing because it's totally different than the way God has worked in someone else's life. Secondly, because we're a community in an individualistic culture, community and family and church does not happen by accident. The default mode for most churches in Orange County is that people come to a single place to consume religious goods and services, and they go back to their uh, planned track homes, and they go about their lives. Community doesn't happen on accident, and so we are trying to be intentional about being a church community where you can hear other voices, you can get to know other people, and we can continue to build trust and be a family together. And then uh, lastly, the reason why we do some sharing and the reason why we'll have some testimonies after the sermon today is because if we're on mission We have to continue to grow in talking about Jesus and thinking about how God is working in our lives individually or in our family. If we're not flexing that muscle to think about the gospel and then apply it to our lives and then get good at saying, here's how God is working, here's how God is on the move in my life, then when you have those opportunities to share the gospel, talk about Jesus, or even relate to someone with your faith, when those opportunities come up, It'll seem totally new, but if we can grow in that area, then it'll just be a normal part of your faith to believe the gospel, continue to believe it more in your life, and then when people get to know you, they will have a hard time not uh, getting to know Jesus because they got to know you. So, so sermon with some questions, I would appreciate your input, but then we're going to save 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the end of the sermon for us to just have public testimonies where you can just kind of stand up and give a one-minute to minute and a half, 
testimony of how God has been working in your life. And specifically, the question for today is, how is God revealing himself to be praiseworthy in your life? How is God revealing himself to you, working in your life, answering prayers, teaching you something in a way that uh, he is showing himself to be praiseworthy? That's all because Psalm 138, the passage we just read, is primarily about giving praise to the Lord. And the Bible is all over the place. It says, God is worthy of worship. And then the Bible also says, I'm going to stand up here uh, so I can get excited. Okay, so God shows himself to be worthy of worship. And uh, all over the place, when people grow in their faith, they give glory to God. And so there's an objection, I think, in a, a group this size or with people who aren't sure where they stand with God, that sounds something like this. Why does God insist on being glorified? Why does God insist on receiving worship and needing to be the most glorious, praised, worshipped entity in the universe? And I think the objection goes something like this. After all, isn't God then revealing himself to be a megalomaniac, to be self-centered, and to have created us only for his good? So here's my question. Think, pair, up, share, How is it good that God commands our worship? And how is God good in the midst of uh, his insistence that we worship him? Ready, set, go. I'll give you like only two minutes, so it's going to have to be quick. Go for it. Okay, we have too many other questions to to talk for too much longer. Does anyone have anything they want to share with the group? I would just love to hear your thoughts on a rather difficult question and slash objection to Christianity, which is why does God insist on receiving worship and thanksgiving, and how is he good that he demands that he be praised? Any, any thoughts? Difficult question. Yeah, great insight. If something's good, our hearts naturally attract to it, and you just go, Chick-fil-A. You know what I mean? You just go, like, it is... It's good, you know, whatever it is. If something is good, our, our, we, our attention goes to it. And so if God is the ultimate good, and if God is praiseworthy, it's only natural that we would do that. It's like a natural outflow. And he knows that. I think God knows that he's God, you know. And he goes, it's only fitting that you would worship me. I think I would add to what you're saying, because I kind of hear in your comment, that um, when we do it to people, it becomes destructive because we're flawed. But when God is the ultimate good, then it's not destructive. And uh, yeah, interesting insight. Okay, someone over here. Yeah, that's so interesting that God has created us, if I understand you correctly, God has created us with this like telos, which is a 50 cent word you learn in college, about like the the nature, the created nature of uh, who we are. And so it's just who we are, and God has made us this way. And so in a sense, when we're worshiping God, we're fulfilling something that has been put in us to make us fully human. Uh, We don't have time for for too many answers, so I think we'll just move on, but I think we've uh, addressed... A, a main answer to this question, which is, why is God so centered on himself? And I guess the answer is that he is the one thing, I guess you could say, that can be, because he is the perfect good, because he's shown himself to be powerful, more powerful than anything else that we can put our worth or our value or our worship in, and he is good. I would just, uh, to bounce off the two comments, our lives are made right when we worship God. Our lives are put in order when we live for his glory, and the world is made right. When it doesn't uh, survive off of tribalism, my group wins and your group loses. Or when the world is about each individual just fighting over one another to, to make something more or to get more, to have a bigger house. Or, the world is in disorder there. But to the extent that the world seeks to glorify the biblical God, the world itself uh, finds itself in a good place. And I think that in love, that God knows that the world is better when he receives worship. And so 
He does, and he demands it. And he demands that because what is for God's glory is also for our good. And, and that's why during Thanksgiving, I guess the, the, what we see in Psalm 138, and my prayer for us this Thanksgiving, is that we don't just thank God for the things that he gives us or the positive circumstances that we can kind of say thank you for, but we thank God for himself, for who he is. That's really where we're headed with the rest of our discussion for the morning. And our passage is just a list of reasons why God is worthy of worship, praiseworthy, thankworthy, I guess you could make, to make up a word. Uh, we thank God in this passage for five things, and we'll move through them relatively quickly. His preeminence in verse 1 and 2, meaning he's better, more worthy than anything else. We thank God for answered prayer in verse 3. We thank God for his position high and lofty above all things in verses 4, 5, and 6. We thank him for his protection in verse 7, and then we thank him for the purpose that we find in life because of his praiseworthiness. Um, I had originally planned to have a few testimonials on the stage here this morning because people had kind of, uh, uh, we had discussed in days past about people sharing their story of coming to faith. As it stood, uh, people were either helping out to run our kids' ministry or were gone for a few different reasons. So I have a few videos I want to show you as well during our service of people who have a testimony of God being praiseworthy, just like uh, our passage mentions. So like I said, the big idea is that the greatest demonstration of gratitude is not what God gives us, but God, who God is and what he does for us and in the world through these five um, P words. So let's start with preeminence. Preeminence is kind of a big word to say God's surpassing worth and greatness. Um, we have to thank God for who he is because he is a revealed God. He's not just a God on a cloud, distant, and then maybe if you're good enough, you do enough religious deeds, or if you just obey some sort of natural law long enough, then maybe God will reveal himself to you or accept you if you die. Instead, we have a God who has revealed himself. He has a personhood. His triune nature between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, is by his nature communal and loving. And that's how God has revealed himself. Because of that, we have a relationship back with God as a, relation, uh, uh, um, as a relational God. And what he has told us about himself is that he is preeminent and more worthy and beautiful than anything else in this world. Take a look in verse 1. David writes, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods, I sing your praise. David references the little g gods, all the other religions and all the other things that might receive worship. I give you praise above the, the, the little g gods, and he says, I bow down before you, before your holy temple. Here's the main point, and it's across scripture, that everyone worships because everyone finds their worth in something, everyone finds their self-worth in something, everyone values something as ultimate, and everyone sees something as a savior, therefore everyone worships. So if you ever go through a difficult time, and then in your mind you think, it's going to be okay because blank. Whatever you fill in that blank tends to be your functional Savior. Even if you're a Christian and you know Jesus, you're baptized, you believe in Jesus, and then sometimes it's tested because you go through a trial, and then we just think, I know I'll be okay because blank. That tends to be your functional Savior, even if, as Christians, we say, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. And so you might say, I know no matter what, I've got a pension. I know no matter what. 
I've got some money tucked away. Well, functionally, your tucked away money, your pension, your, your successful choices financially are your functional savior because that's what you're leaning, to, leaning on in that time. Martin Luther in the 1500s said that a God, a real God that you worship is this, that which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe that something in something with your whole heart. Here's the exercise I go through in my own life. I'll confess to you that um, because I'm kind of like the overlooked younger brother of successful older siblings from a nowhere town in Central California, I know that there's some part of me that wants to be like a successful person. And uh, I know in, in times it creeps up into my Christian life that I think I trust in my functional savior of being successful at what I do to save me from the hell of insignificance and being overlooked in my adult life. I'm confessing my sin to you. But all of us have those kind of fill in the blanks. For instance, you might think, um, I trust in having a romantic partner to save me from the hell of loneliness. And as long as I know that somebody loves me, somebody can look me in the eye and say, I, I love you, I, I'm romantically interested in you, then I know I'm not going to be lonely. Some of us might say, um, I trust in family approval to save me from the hell of shame and rejection. Or you might think, I trust in marital, uh, I'm sorry, marital, material comfort and security to save me from the hell of insecurity and not knowing what will happen tomorrow. We all have functional saviors, and David is saying, I decide. I know there's other gods. I know I'm prone to worship other things. And David is saying, I will bow down to you, God, and I will worship you in front of the other gods. All this kind of came to light in my mind when I watched the movie Rocky. There's a moment in Rocky where, you know, like, like any good movie plot, you kind of wonder, like, is the good guy ever going to win? And Rocky is the ultimate underdog sports movie. There is, a mo- there is a video circulating the internet somewhere of my wife videotaping me while I watch Rocky, which is really embarrassing because it was like, like, like while he fights, I'm like fighting with him as though like my rooting for him will help. So uh, Rocky, at some point in the plot of the movie, lays down on his bed, kind of like thousand yard stare, and he says, um, I'll probably lose. I can't win. I'm going to get destroyed by Apollo Creed. Um, but I want to go the distance. I want to go the distance. Nobody goes the distance like me. I'm going to go the distance because I know if I can get to that final bell, I'm no, I'm, I, I'll know I'm not a bum from the neighborhood. I'll know I'm not just a bum as long as I can achieve this thing. And so in the end, Rocky Balboa is saying, I trust in my ability to just fight and to take punishment to save me from the hell of feeling worthless. All of us have functional saviors. David is saying, God, you are worthy. I know you're worthy. And so I'm going to very intentionally worship you in light of the other things that I know tend to steal my affections away from you, God, and put on other things. Of course, the problem with these things, idols, other things that you worship, is that they're lousy gods. They're good things. Fighting uh, and having endurance is a good thing. Money's a good thing. Um, Sex is a good thing. But when it becomes a God, when pleasure becomes a God, then it destroys your life because it's just a lousy God. It's not forgiving like God is. It's not eternal like God is. It doesn't love you like God 
does. So here's my question for you. Think, pair, share. Um, what do you think are like the top three heart idols and things that receive worship other than God in Orange County today? What do you think are the top three things that we just tend to take our affections away from the Lord onto something else? And it could be an object, it could be a concept, it could be a person, whatever it is. Ready? Discuss. All right, we're going quick. Throw them out there. What do you guys think? Somebody in the back row, what do you think? Top things that we worship other than Jesus in Orange County. Education, yeah, and there's probably some status, if I, if I uh, could guess, probably some status around education. I went to UC this, you know, or I went to US this. Um, yeah, absolutely. Anyone else? Money, just how many zeros? Yeah. Yeah, things, absolutely. And things can be a status thing or things could be a comfort thing. You go, I know as long as I got this thing to keep me comfortable and have the pleasure of this thing, then I'll be saved from the hell of discomfort or an uncomfortable life. Yeah. What else? Kids. Yeah. Do you mind if I ask you a follow-up question? In what way do we idolize kids? Or what do you think is the motivation to idolize kids? Yeah, absolutely. I've been, the reason I ask is because I just had a kid, but also I have just been thinking for some time, like why is it so all-consuming all that kids become, you know they become an idol. What what hell are they saving me from, you know? Is it feeling like a failure? Because if they succeed, and I, but I feel like a failure in my life, then at least there's something or, or, or something, you know? The good news of Christ is that everything that we look to for, to be our God, um, though it's insufficient, Christ fulfills that in us. I mean, if you feel like a failure and you're tempted to make something else your success, then see that on the cross, Christ died to remove your sins, but also to give you the success that only he achieved as the perfect son of God. And he puts that on you. He makes that your identity when you become a Christian. Or if you're uncomfortable, see the, the, the pain that Christ went through on your behalf, but then also see the future that you have, that even if this life is hard, you have a future, a glorious pleasure-filled, comfortable future with him because God reigns and he will return and you'll be with him for all of eternity. Gosh, what else are, could we think of that, that the gospel solves, uh, that uh, makes God worthy? Like uh, status, you feel like a loser, you feel insignificant, but see that you are a called and gifted son or daughter of God who is a part of God's mission, much more significant in your life than whether you got that promotion or not. Jesus is the solution um, to all of those things, and that's why God is worthy of worship and preeminent. That was our first point. The rest of them will probably have to go, for the sake of time, relatively quickly. But secondly, we see that God is praiseworthy because of answered prayer. God answers our prayers, and he's praiseworthy because of it. And you might very well have a testimony of that from the last year of your life, maybe, where you're pouring out your heart to God and saying, God, bring some resolution to this. God, uh, give me favor in this particular area. And it's powerful to remember those prayers and to see how God answers those prayers. And sometimes he answers with the exact answer that you gave. Sometimes he gives you something that you didn't ask for, um, but is ultimately still good in the midst of that. We thank God, thirdly, for his position in verses 4, 5, and 6. Um, it says in verse 6 specifically that, um, For though the Lord is high, he rewards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Just very simply, we, the Bible values a life of humility before the Lord. I find it so interesting that God says, Though he's high, though he's powerful, he values 
people who recognize their position underneath his gloriousness and his greatness. So uh, you, you might notice that we live in a culture and a time where the culture kind of insists that if you want to be successful, you have to have unquestioning self-esteem. The ticket to success in life is to just never question yourself and just run headlong into your life, never asking, am I a sinner? Do I need saving? It's just all helicopter parent encouragement. You can do it. You're an astronaut. You're an NFL player. Even if you weigh like 110 pounds your senior year of high school, like don't ever question yourself. You are perfect. And that's the ticket to success. But we notice that that is like causing the degradation of people's um, emotional well-being in life. Because there's only so long that you can keep up that facade of saying, I am confident. I can do it. Instead, the Bible gives us this like duality that I think is really powerful that I'm more wicked and sinful than I can really ever imagine, but more loved and cherished and empowered in Christ than I could ever dare dream. And when you have those two things, it's not a, it's not a, a spectrum of do I have low self-esteem or high self-esteem, but I have Jesus-esteem. I don't know what to call it. I have gospel self-esteem, deeply flawed, but at the same time completely loved and accepted, and nothing's going to change that. God is worthy because of his high position. That's why it makes sense when James 4.10 says, humble yourself before the Lord, he will lift you up. And then lastly, before we do our public testimonies, we thank God for protection and purpose. Sometimes you go through difficult times in life and you just see that God has protected you. And you look back and maybe your testimony is, it could have been way worse. But we see that God in his grace did not allow that to happen, but protected me. And certainly in Christ, we have this confidence that no matter what people do to us, nothing's going to change the fact that I have a future in Jesus. Sometimes he protects us. In the meantime, he gives us purpose. In verse 8, it says, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. It's saying, God, you're at work. You've given me a purpose. There's a reason why I am still living. I guess the question just is, as a community, what do we do now but to worship God? What is the only response that you can have with God being that good to you or that great and powerful in the midst of negative circumstances outside of just saying, God, you are God, you are worthy of praise, and I am not? And so here's the question for Thanksgiving, for our group testimonies, is um, how is God revealing himself to be praiseworthy in your life. And I know what's going to happen. Uh, uh, slow, awkward silence, awkward silence, and then uh, everyone's going to jam in, in the end of that kind of thing.